The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Well, um, as he said, my name is Janie. Glad that you guys are here tonight. Did you all have great Memorial Day weekends? Yeah. All right. Um, well, I'm glad that you enjoyed yourself on Memorial Day. My Memorial Day weekend wasn't all that exciting, but I remembered some past Memorial Day weekends that I've had um, that were actually pretty great. Um, because a couple Memorial Day weekends over the past few years, I have gone to ride roller coasters. How many of you guys like riding roller coasters? Yeah, coaster fans? Um, it's one of my favorite things to do. I go on lots of vacation for the sole purpose of riding a roller coaster. When I lived in Tennessee, I drove to Cincinnati for the purpose of riding a roller coaster, one of the longest in the world. It's pretty great. So I really like roller coasters. It's often one of the reasons that I do go to the places that I go. And one of the places that I go at least once a year, annual pilgrimage, is uh, Six Flags Magic Mountain because it's probably the best bang for your buck as far as the good roller coasters all being in one spot, and because I have free people to stay with in Southern California. So um, I typically go with Becky Riggers. Many of you know her. She loves coasters as well. She went to the DR trip this past spring break. And Becky would say her favorite coaster at Magic Mountain is X2. I don't know if you guys have ever ridden that before. But it's kind of a crazy experience. There's like fire breathing when you're on this coaster. I don't even know. And usually my re- it goes like backwards, sideways, every direction. And my reaction when it's over is always, what just happened? I mean, it's a crazy experience. I'm more of a purist. Um, because the thing about riding X2 and, and crazy coasters like it is that it's like you have to put on a suit of armor to ride the coaster. You're like strapped in here and like here, and the only part of your body that moves is like your arms from your elbows out. Woo! <laughs> I really like Goliath. It's my favorite coaster at Magic Mountain. I think we have a picture of the outside of Goliath. Um, yeah. Even the sign looks awesome. Um, and it, it's a coaster. It doesn't go upside down, but it just has like a lap belt. And I love that because the, like you're free to put up your arms and feel, it feels like you're going to go flying out of the car. So whenever we go to, um, whenever we go to Magic Mountain, I ride it like four times or so. And I actually want to show you a clip. You can start that, Matt, of, um, what it looks like to ride on Goliath. So this is the initial ascent. It's going, you start, um, at 235 feet. That's kind of the top as you're going up. So this is, you know, kind of what you're looking at on the side. Yeah, pretty high in the air. And this whole time you're kind of anticipating what, uh, what you're about to experience. And then you get to the top. And this, I think, is my favorite part of the whole thing. It stops. For just a minute. And then... Uh! That's like the best. So it's 235 feet at... And then you go around this corner and it's crazy. 235 feet at 85 miles an hour. And everybody 
is like has their hands up, and no matter what you do, you tell your brain, keep your hands up, keep your hands up, but it's as you're going in the tunnel, everyone's like, oh, like you feel like you're going to hit. There's no possible way. So I actually, we ride it so frequently that one time we got the picture that you can get when you go. So <laughs> two things, two things about this picture, everyone, it looked like a Muppet. I don't think my eyes could be bulging out any more than they are. And then the second thing that I love about this picture, look at Becky's hands. They're both in front of each person sitting in the car behind us. So I can imagine like they, they come out of the coaster and they go to like, yes, I can't wait to see what we look like. And they're like, <laughs> all we see are this lady's giant hands. So you can put that picture down. I obviously have no pride. I mean, that's one of the best pictures I've ever taken. So the thing with the roller coasters, why am I talking about them? Why do I love them? And I thought about this. I've, I've gotten philosophical. I've pontificated. Why do I love roller coasters? And one of the big reasons is I think it's this two-minute concentrated demonstration of what the experience of life is like. Really, one of the best metaphors for our lives is a roller coaster. At risk of over-spiritualizing, I do think about God, right? My hands are raised, maybe because I'm like, save me! Oh my gosh! But there's up, there's down, there's going in circles, there's um, screaming in panic, exhilaration of joy, all at the same time. And even if it's not an emotional reaction we have, in our lives, we don't know what might be around the next corner, we don't know when we might black out from a gravitational pull, we don't know what the next... <laughs> We don't know what the next, what's going to be over the next hill. So there's so much about our lives that I think can be summed up by what it's like to ride a roller coaster. And I was thinking about this when I was um, preparing for tonight. And, and we're looking at the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms encapsulates life in a really similar way. I've been going through a series called Dear God. And so much in the Psalms is, is like roller coasters. You have the pain and crying out to God for help. And you have exhilaration and joy and you have the reality of not knowing what's around the next corner or over the next hill. And that's one of the great things about the Psalms, is that it's very human. It's a very human book. Like, it's like no other book in all of Scripture. And um, part of the reason we wanted to look at it is because I think it encapsulates, the, it, it encapsulates the human experience like nothing else. And as you guys are about to embark on summer, summer can be the time when people's faith journeys can take the back burner in their lives, right? And so we wanted, it, we wanted to look at these psalms to encourage you to engage with God. Use the psalms as an opportunity to engage with God. So two weeks so far, we've been looking at these psalms. Ryan Church started us a couple weeks ago. We were looking at psalms of orientation. And these are psalms that, for people who have a serene faith, that put God in the proper perspective as the God of the universe. That's what the psalms of orientation do. And then last week, our intern Ryan Andrews did a phenomenal job of talking about the psalms of disorientation. These are psalms where we find ourselves at the bottom of a pit, where we're crying out to God, where are you, God? What have you done? What's happening in my circumstances? And this week, we're going to be looking at the psalms of new or reorientation. And in my mind, these are the psalms that most closely parallel what it's like to ride a roller coaster, because they include the pain and suffering and brokenness of our lives, and they include exhilaration and joy and praising God. So I'm excited to take a look at that with you guys tonight. Um, but before we do that, I want to pray for God's presence with us.
God, we thank you that you are in our midst. We thank you that as we come before you, you hear us, you receive us, and you respond to us. I pray that tonight, as we take a look at your psalms, that we would be reminded of what it looks like to be oriented toward you, to bring our whole selves, our questions, our struggles, our needs, our joy, and our pain, and to lay them at your feet. Speak through me now, and open all of our ears to what you want to teach us. In your name, amen. So the psalms are great, like I said, because I think there's nothing like them in all of Scripture. They're the most human of everything that we could find in Scripture. Um, they come from a very human place. It's a, Ryan Andrews said, it's a song or a poem commonly expressing emotion toward God or life. That's what we have with the psalms. So it comes from a human place. And Matt Bana on the In Speaking team um, he said, he's actually doing PowerPoint tonight, utility player here at the end, which is not the easiest thing to do because sometimes that computer back there is like the spawn of Satan. It has a mind of its own. But what Matt said when we were talking about the Psalms was um, he loved, what he loved about the Psalms is they enact imagination in relationship with God, which I think is so true. The writers of the Psalms use all these rhetorical devices like similes and metaphors, like God is a shield. They use hyperbole, like our enemies are innumerable, in order to um, describe a prayer. And I point this out because the Psalms are not to be read in a literal way. It's important for us to know that. The psalmists use exaggeration and hypothetical stuff all the time, and they're always poetry. It's not a dialogue. It's not God talking to us through the prophets. It's not narrative story. It's a poem, and we have to remember that because the Psalms are actually written to be evocative, to promote a response. The goal of the psalmist is for us to respond to them, and not only with our thoughts, but also with our feelings. We're supposed to respond to Psalms with our emotions, and they're also meant to get a response from God as well. And that helps us understand, at least to a degree, why some Psalms seem problematic, at least from our Christian perspective. Um, we, read it, we read the Psalms through the lens of the New Testament or through Jesus. And so for us, forgiveness and reconciliation is the most important virtue, right? So we read these Psalms, and some of them are calling on God to destroy all of our enemies. God, wipe them out. We want them to be destroyed. Psalm 137 is a great example of that. The Israelites have been destroyed. The nation of Israel has been destroyed. Jerusalem, their capital city, has been destroyed. Most of the people have been killed by these Babylonian invaders, and a bunch of them have been taken prisoner to Babylon. And what the Israelites say in Psalm 137 is, um, how wonderful are those who take the infants of the Babylonians and crush their heads on the rocks. Whoa, that's a pretty emotional response. Someone's um, having a hard time. And when we read that, we might think, what? These are God's people, and they're saying they want people destroyed. It doesn't make sense to us. And what I want you to realize is it's not our job to justify what they're saying. We don't have to explain why the Israelites would want people destroyed, but we can try to understand where they're coming from and what it is they're trying to say to God. And while I can't reconcile some of the things that are said in the Psalms that seem pretty problematic, at least to me, what I can try and do is understand what the, where the Israelites are coming from. And here, there are two things that I think it's important for us to understand. The first one is when we read the Psalms, we realize that they have been, the Israelites were persecuted, they were destroyed over and over and over again throughout their history. 
And whenever we are hurt by someone, whenever someone causes us pain, what is our immediate reaction to them? We want revenge, don't we? We want, we want them to experience the same hurt and pain that we've experienced. Now, maybe we haven't had our nation destroyed and taken prisoner, but I think we all have been hurt by people in our lives. Let's talk about maybe someone hurting you in a dating relationship. You only had positive, wonderful responses to that, right? I can look back at my journal at a time when my boyfriend started dating my best friend behind my back. So what I wrote in my journal was not, oh man, God, I hope they have live happily ever after. By home in the suburbs, maybe one on the beach too, that'd be great for them. I actually had some other choice words as far as what I wanted God to do to them and their relationship. But it was an opportunity for me to bring my, even my vengeful self to God. And the second thing I want us to recognize um, when it comes to these psalms that seem problematic is that Israelites didn't act on them. They actually let God be the judge. They just told God, here is what our desire is, God, you be the judge. They surrendered what it was that they were struggling with to God. And I think what the psalmist is trying to get us to do is to surrender ourselves to God because it's only when we bring our vengeful selves, our our hate-filled selves, that God's able to enter into our heart and transform it to reconciling selves, forgiving selves. So I think these psalms that seem problematic can teach us the honesty that God wants from us and the new orientation God wants from us as well. So the Psalms of of New Orientation that we're talking about tonight are closely connected to what Ryan talked about last night, last week, with the Psalms of Disorientation. They involve trouble and difficulty and destruction, and they also involve noticing that you've been saved by God unexpectedly. The Israelites were in moments of destruction, and then they realized, God has saved me. God has reconciled me. So let's take a look at Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Verse 6, it clues us in. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. This is a psalm of new orientation, desperate situation. God intervened even when they didn't expect it. We also have some of the elements that I talked about earlier. You have metaphor, talking about the lion. And verse 8, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. That means absorb with your entire being. Let all five senses absorb the reality of God at work in your life and in this world. When you look at food and you think, oh, wow, that looks really good, you haven't experienced it for yourself. Or someone says, oh, man, I tasted that, and it is amazing. You still haven't experienced it for yourself. 
Until you taste and see that God is good, you're not going to know how amazing God can be. The psalmist is encouraging you to experience God with all of yourselves. So that's what we have with the Psalms of New Orientation, being in a desperate situation and having a surprising gift of being saved, something that you can't explain. Now, you don't go back to the way things were before you found yourself in a pit, before you found yourself in a desperate situation. You can't go back in time or erase what's happened. But there's a healing that you didn't expect. Even though you remember the difficulty, you can identify ways that God has been present and given you a new orientation, a reorientation towards him that you didn't have when you found yourself in the bottom of a pit. It's something that the Israelites didn't know how to explain, so they did what they knew how to do. They testified to the amazement of the grace and power of God at work in their lives. And I can't explain to you how God has transformed me, how Jesus has saved me from my sins, but all I can do is testify to the amazement that God has been at work in me through Jesus Christ. About 10 years ago, I had an experience of the depths of despair, being at the bottom of a pit. I was in grad school, and I was living in New Jersey, and one of my closest friends, um, her name was Kristen, she was living a few thousand miles away. And we were those, you know, you guys probably have those friends where you just, you just get each other, you know? You're just like, we're, we're like this, right? We just understand each other. And we used to say that we were kindred spirits, and in a parallel universe, we were probably sisters. Like, that's how close we were. We just had a great relationship. And one day, uh, it was the beginning of December, and I got a phone call. Pick up the phone, and the person on the other end told me that that day, Kristen had been killed in a car accident. It was one of the only moments in my life where my knees buckled, and I fell on the floor. And I just cried. I was in the pit of despair. I was crying constantly for two weeks, contrary to probably what some of you think of me. Um, I actually do cry all the time. But I was crying, and I couldn't stop for two weeks. I mean, I was just desperate, and I remember crying out to God, why? How could you let this happen? Where are you in the midst of this? I had no answers. I had no explanations. And then at one moment, I had this moment of amazing grace. I got this envelope shoved under my door, and I opened it up. And I was in grad school, like I said, so I had, I had no money. There was no way I was going to be able to go to her memorial service. And I opened up this envelope, and there's a card and $300 cash. And on the card, it was signed by 30 friends of mine. They had all given $10 so that I could go to this memorial service. Now, my pain and my grief didn't go away. I was still desperately hurting because of what had happened to my close friend. But I had this moment of amazing grace. God had shown me grace and love through my community. We can have a new orientation even in the midst of our hurt and our pain when we least expect it. And we can have a new orientation toward our God. That's what the psalmist is trying to get us to do, to recognize the moments of God's grace in our lives, even in the midst of our pain, even when we're in the deepest pit. As I mentioned earlier, all the psalms are poetry. And the thing about Psalm 34 that's really interesting is that it's actually an acrostic poem. And for those of you that don't know what an acrostic is, you take the letters of a word and every letter starts a verse so for those of you that don't know, I wrote an acrostic for you about our fearless leader, Ryan, just to kind of give you a picture of what it looks like. So Ryan, R is for really, really, really resembles Radcliffe, as in Daniel, as in Harry Potter. <laughs> y is for young. He is, he's really young, because he's my age. That means he's really young. <laughs> a is for always tries to be like Janie. 
duh. And N is for named himself, the R. That's right, he gave himself that nickname. Don't let him tell you anything differently. Each stanza of the 22 verses of Psalm 34 actually starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And um, the reason I think this is interesting is that it would have been used, and the Psalms are passed down by oral tradition, um, and by having each letter start with, each verse start with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, it would have been taught to children. And the psalmist wants to teach children how it is that you can live your life in response to God. That's the goal of this psalm, is to be able to teach children. And in verse 11, he actually says, the psalmist says, Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He wants to teach children that he has been rescued. He wants to offer counsel as to how they can live lives in service to God as well. Now, one thing to note that the psalmist um, says more than once, and it's actually a common phrase, is fear of the Lord. And I think we read that a lot. All throughout the Old Testament, this psalm actually says it a lot. Verse 9, which we already read, says, Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. This can be really confusing, because in the midst of praising God, God, thanks for delivering me, um, we are called to fear God. How is that a good recommendation? Because we associate fear with negative things with being terrified, with paranoia, with peeing our pants, right? Those are the things that we associate with fear. So how are those things supposed to help us, right? Don't you guys ever say, I was so scared I almost peed my pants. How are those things supposed to help us worship God? Why Why is fear of the Lord such a common phrase? This is a case of lost in translation. The phrase translated in English, fear of the Lord, is actually one word or two words stuck together in Hebrew, and it's a positive response to God. Some English words are close, words like awe or reverence or respect, um, but they aren't quite adequate to explain what the fear of the Lord is. The Israelites understood the fear of the Lord is to live in response to God as your creator, your savior, your blesser. The fear of the Lord means you stop thinking about yourself and you start thinking about God. Here's how I've come to understand it. Let's say you're in your room. It's late at night, all the lights are off, and you hear this loud bang. And you're like, what is that? What's that noise? Right? What are the responses that you have in your mind and your body? You start feeling fearful, right? Your heart starts beating faster. The adrenaline starts pumping through your veins. And what else starts happening? Starts happening. Time starts to slow down. You have a hyper-awareness of everything that's going on around you. Your senses are amazing, right? In a dark room, I feel like I can see like a cat. And all of a sudden, my hearing is good. I feel like I can hear a mile away. And then you start to pay attention to everything that's going on in the stillness of the room. What happens when you're fearful is you pay attention. That's what the fear of the Lord is, to live your life in a way that you are hyper-aware of the fact that God is present. And you can see it with your eyes, you can hear it, you can notice it in everything that's going on. It's not a negative fear, It would make you run away from God. It's a positive response that you want to draw closer to God. 
there definitely should be fear involved because we should be scared when we recognize the potential of what the God of the universe can do. But we can be filled with awe and mystery that God is present, even in our fear. Eugene Peterson writes, Fear of the Lord is fear that pulls us out of our preoccupation with ourselves, our feelings, our circumstances, into a world of wonder and awareness. When we're fearful, we pay attention. Not dread, but astonishment. Not terror, but reverence. Not shaking in your boots, panic, but enraptured with love, fascination. That's the fear of the Lord. Every time I step on a roller coaster, I am petrified. And one of the coasters that we ride at Magic Mountain is called Viper. It has the sign as you're going up the initial ascent that says, keep hands on grab bar. And the grab bar is like right here. So I just keep saying to myself over and over again, keep hands on grab bar, keep hands on grab bar. You know, white knuckles, holding onto the grab bar as tight as I possibly can. God wants us to hold onto him as tight as we possibly can. In the midst of fear and trembling of what God can do, we have a deep sense of peace because we know what God has done and we know what God will do in our lives and in this world. Listen to what the psalmist says at the end of Psalm 34, starting at verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. He protects all their bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. God is in the business of saving the downtrodden. As, we clo as I close tonight, I want to give you guys some tools to write your own psalms. Now, that might sound kind of silly, but honestly, that's how I pray to God. One of my favorite authors is Thomas Merton, who is a Trappist monk who spent 12 hours a day in prayer. And he says, in prayer, we are always beginners. And I remind myself of that every day when I don't know what to pray to God. So here's what I pray. It's called the here's what prayer. So I start off by saying, writing in my journal or saying out loud to God, God, here's what about you, God. Here's what about you and everything I can offer to God that's a praise about who God is. And when I run out of things to say, which is pretty quick because there's so only so many times you can say, God, you're awesome. God, you're super awesome. God, you're super duper awesome. Um, I will look to the Psalms because they give me the language I need in order to say, God, here's what about you. And then the second thing that I will tell God or write in my journal is I'll say, God, here's what about me. Here are all the things I need you to know about me. And we need to include in that, here is the pain that I feel. Here are the people that I want you to take revenge on. Here's the brokenness that I feel. And again, I run out of language. I can only say, I suck at this and this and this so many times. And the Psalms can give me the language that I need. And the last thing is thank you, thank you, thank you. Words of thanks. God, thank you for this. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for saving me and orienting me back to you. That is what I desperately needed. And these are like the psalms that we've looked at. The first one, psalm of orientation. God, here's what about you. Psalms of disorientation. God, I am lost. Where are you? I need you. 
And then Psalms of New Orientation. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God is never removed from our lives. And the Psalms remind us that our transformation is made possible when we engage with our God, when we talk to our God, when we allow God to respond to us. And our God is not a God who reaches down and pulls us out of the pit. Our God is a God that says, through Jesus, he's going to get in the pit with us. He's going to pick us up from below so that we can know he saves us once again. God, we thank you that as we orient ourselves to you, you are present in ways we can't even imagine. We thank you for the amazing grace of your son, Jesus, that provides us with an orientation towards you and with you so that we can be renewed through you every single day. God, we pray that you would hear us and speak to us as we desire to respond to you. In your holy name, amen.